Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Howdy, monkey. You good? Yeah, mate. All good. All good. It's been a very uh, busy but productive and, and fun-filled day. Uh, oh, yeah. I just went down to London. A friend of mine who I'm staying with tonight, he just had a documentary about him screened at the um, Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square. It was the debut sort of, you know, airing of the film. So, yeah, it's quite an exciting, fun night. Oh, nice. What's the guy do? Why? So, so did you ever see, I'm not sure if the show made it over to the States, but you might have sort of heard about it through, you know, your British pals. But um, Dirty Sanchez was the TV show that he was in which was essentially like a UK counterpart to Jackass. Okay. Um, so it was, you know, pranks, hijinks. Okay. And, and shenanigans. And since that show kind of fell by the wayside, um, you know, he's been through various different struggles, um, addiction and depression. and But he sort of flipped it around he came out of covid and decided because he's always had like an extreme kind of mentality um he rode the atlantic ocean with another guy and they were on just like a tiny boat and it took them two months and they did if you can imagine this two hours on rowing two hours off resting two hours on rowing non-stop for two months straight so the documentary kind of traced his rise to fame, you know, going off the rails, the kind of come down that follows on from riding those highs to then, like, how do you turn that insane brain into something that's more productive, positive, and ultimately fulfilling and, and healthy? Um, okay. So, yeah, man. Is it cool? Is uh, the, it cool? film's, the film's called The Road of Excess. All right, I look out for it. And it just had its first screening today, so they're in the process of shopping it around. But yeah, just a really yeah. insp- inspiring tale um, of someone who's you know ridden the highest of highs, lowest of lows, and hits fifteen yeah. and goes, "Well, what next?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, how's life with you? What's been going on your end? 
Um, well, it's not raining here. No doubt. It's supposed to actually be uh, maybe hit 100 tomorrow. Wow. Yeah, unseasonably warm, actually. Um, so I don't know. I'm just getting prepared to go out to the museum again um, at the beginning of the month. They, uh, they've kind of themed it uh, like a revolution weekend um, based on, you know, French Revolution, Viva La Revolution, Anonymous, and so I'm kind of theming it, and I, I'm doing. I'm there on November the fifth, so I don't. They don't really know too much about Guy Fawkes out here. I <laughs> so I'm. Uh, I was just in the process of right uh, putting together a post, and with uh, remember, remember the fifth of November, and I don't didn't. The treason and plot. But yeah, but you know, I didn't. I didn't really get much past that as a kid. Gunpowder treason and plot when you go around Penny for the guy and the bonfire and all that. I was reading it yes yesterday. There's a whole second verse that goes on um to to um shout the virtues of hanging the Pope and stuff like that. So, uh well, I guess he was a terrorist, wasn't he? Like he was punk rock, I mate, trying to blow up Parliament and the King. I was <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's the famous phrase, isn't it? The one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Yeah. And, um, I guess Americans would have probably been introduced to that whole myth. Well, not mythology, but um, uh, culture and story just through the um, V for Vendetta movies and comics. They, they, they're using that imagery in some of the posts as well. So, yeah, it is very similar themes. Um, but, yeah, there was, you know, I don't know, kind of brought back memories of going penny for the guy around the Council of State in Ipswich and... You know, throwing the effigy on the on the bonfire in the backyard with cheap bangers and rockets, <laughs> frying potatoes on the fire for dinner. You know, on the bonfire. And uh, do you yeah. miss a lot of 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 home of British culture? How long have you How long have you been in the states now? Been quite a while, right? In, in uh, the first week of December, it'll be thirty years. Wow. Are Are you just, just as a point? Are you using the Video, I will. Yeah, yeah I've only re I've only recently started um, clipping it up for YouTube, only oh. because um, in this sort of digital age we're in now, I've I've been doing the podcast as an audio show for seven years, and right. do great numbers, and you know found a really amazing audience during that time. But just the way everything shifted recently, um, I just put my first video up last week with episode three hundred, which is Billy Corgan. Oh. From the Smashing Pumpkins, and um, just Great it immediately finds new eyes and ears because of the way that algorithm on that platform yeah. works. So, I mean, obviously, there's little in the way of budget, as you can see here, because I'm kind of you know, I've literally just arrived back at my mate's house. So, don't worry if your end looks a little bit DIY, because as you can see, we've got mold on the ceiling here. So. <laughs> maybe, you put, maybe you can put some nice backgrounds in for us when you. <laughs> I do fix it up and make it look good. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, culturally, I do I do miss some stuff, um, but things have changed in the thirty years since I've been here. Because when I moved out, uh, nineteen ninety three, you know, no internet. <clears throat> Again, just lived in a small apartment with my then girlfriend, who became my wife, who's now my ex wife. But uh, you know, uh. No real money. And the only British news I got was from a newspaper called the British Weekly, which you would pick and pick up in the pub once a week. And it was like a week behind hmm. football results and everything like that. So I kind of lost touch with that in the 90s, I think, until, you know, got more um, connected through social media. So um, I don't miss living there. I do watch a lot of British TV. Um, what do you watch the most of to keep connected in that sense? Um, I've never been really politically interested, but as political as I get, as I have, I got news for you. Mm -hmm. I like the panel shows, I like Q QI, I just watch as much of that as I can. And classic, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, eight out of ten cats and stuff that those kind of you know, kind of light comedy show, you know, but with a, with a bit of smarts about them too, you know. 
I always think I'd love to be a guest on one of those shows because it's kind of like you, you're riffing, aren't you? And you're bouncing off everyone. And I've always been a fan of, of free form entertainment, whatever that entertainment may be, whether it is music or theater or stand up. Um, I love the idea of stepping either into a studio or on stage and kind of not really knowing what's going to happen. I mean, I don't know as, as a performer yourself, like, um, how much of, of the addicts live show is really because the, there's the stage and the set and the visual presentation is really well thought out. And I'd love to talk to you about that, but how much of the kind of show itself for you guys is spontaneous and off the cuff and how much is fairly well sort of dialed in as it were. Um, musically it's, it's dialed in. And as far as like the, the stage show regarding like props and stuff like that, and everything has a cue, um, you know, for maximum effect, of course. Uh, I but the best things are the, the spontaneous things because I mean, you're, you're there to you know create an atmosphere and a reaction from the audience, so you never really know what the people in front of you are going to do or how they're going to react. So, lots of times, we'll bounce off that. And just go with it, and that that might change, may change the set, may change, um, you know, some of the more choreographed things. So we we kind of we like to be loose and spontaneous because there's there's a kind of magical moments really that you didn't plan, amen. Um, and you can't and you can't plan it, and you shouldn't plan it, you know. And it's never try. the same twice, right? That's the, also the great thing is like even if you have a certain idea of a bit or an intro or whatever it might be is always going to vary dependent on the crowd because every night is different, isn't it? If you're a performer who reacts in that way to an audience in that way in the moment. Right. So there's a certain amount of, you know, well, we we had a, a song way back when called Organized Confusion, which was on our first EP. So there's a, a that element still runs through it, you know. <laughs> there's a level of professionalism, but there's also a level of, um, well, what the fuck, let's see what happens now, you know. Yeah, man. Is it still the same guys, the original members who started out the band in the mid-70s? Well, there's three of us. There's myself, Pete on guitar, and his brother, Kid, on drums. Um, so we've been, you know, the backbone, the mainstays, and the, the constants in the band since since day one. Did you all grow up together? Were you all from Ipswich? No, um, Pete and Kid, um, well, they kind of moved around. Their dad was in the military. So right. Kid was actually born in Cyprus. Um, they were lived in Berlin for a while when they were teenagers, um, but they eventually found their way to a around Ipswich, where there's RAF bases, and so that's where Jordy, their dad, who was first world manager of the band, too, he was stationed there, and so they moved there in like the mid seventies, and you know we met so seventy six, seventy seven. Uh, so I we didn't know each other as kids, but you know we we weren't real. We weren't quite uh, old men when, when, we, when we met. So. Yeah, you found each other, I think, the right time. And like Ipswich for me is one of the very few places in the UK I've never spent any time. So I don't know what it's like now, but what was it like growing up there in the early to mid 70s as you're discovering art, cinema, music and, and kind of creative expression? Was it a place that was vibrant with that kind of stuff or was it void of that kind of stuff? And if so, where were you getting a lot of your initial um, sources of it, you know, inspiration and ignition to start doing music yourself? Um, I'm not a musician. I don't play anything. So I'm not necessarily, so I wasn't like playing on my own or learning guitar or anything like that. I just never had that, that talent. So I never had it any idea or aspiration to be in a band and i didn't really know anybody that was you know in bands or that way inclined like in the neighborhood i mean i just grew up on a in council estate on the east of Ipswich. which um yeah pretty much a cultural desert really and um right. not so much that i was aware of going on until we started going you know getting into music at school and I went through all kinds of phases and initially I was uh I guess glam rock was the first thing that really 
connected with me, Slade and Sweet, T-Rex, Bowie, Boxy Music, all of those classics. The best. Yeah, man. Right. I still yeah. think that stuff sound, sounds fresh and exciting and, you know, kind of like 50s rock and roll, but through the filter of futuristic space. Uh, that was kind of the vibe, wasn't it? Yeah. I just watched that great documentary on Susie Quattro called Susie Q. That's yeah. really, really good. Uh, uh, you know, uh, archive of that time too. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I can't remember much going on other than what was on the tit on the telly. Really, you know, top of the pops. I was going to say top of the pops, right? That was where it was beaming all into the lounges from at that time. Yeah. And then our old grey whistle test, but a lot of that stuff was a bit too sort of avant-garde or sophisticated for me at the time, and I just didn't really connect to that. Um, I went through a phase where I kind of like rock because that's what my friends were into: Black Sabbath, English Bone Ash, and Deep Purple, and all that. Mm-hmm. Grew my hair out and wore a oh yeah trench coat and some desert boots I think, <laughs> but was like was never quite sure about it. So oh this is all right, but it's not really what I'm looking for. And from there I transitioned into um, kind of soul and funk, right? And 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 but I can I can see an evolution. I went into soul and funk, and that kind of led me into like. Uh, you know, the later period of Bowie, like Thin White Duke and Roxy Music, it started getting like Cockney Rebel, Bebop Deluxe, yeah. those kind of cool bands that wore suits and stuff like that, and started to pay a bit more attention to fashion and and I and we were we were kind of soul boys at the time, I think, when we were listening to that kind of music. And we were listening to a lot of funk like James Brown, Ohio players and Cameo and that kind of stuff. Wow, we wore mo mohair jumpers that my mum knitted for me and my mates, and um, some some pocky shoes, and uh, we would go down to Colchester because there wasn't really much happening in Ipswich. We would go down to Colchester on Sundays, and I think the club was called the Embassy, and we would go there amazing for the dance music. But this this suddenly we start to see like a shift in some of the people that were there. They were dressing and kind of dancing and looking different. And they were obviously a little bit closer to London than us. And so, you know, they were being influenced by perhaps listening to punk before we were even aware of it, or at least I was anyway. Um, and so that became intriguing to me. Just, uh, you know, I was as much interested in the fashion as I was the music. I, don't, I was attracted to what they were wearing and how they were acting, but I didn't know what kind of music they were listening to. There was something fascinating about it to me. Um, and I think that those guys that we used to see at culture stuff, and again, there's a small group of them, um, and I believe at the time they were in a band called The Lepers. Great name. And- Right, and um, actually, the addicts and the lepers played a few shows, but they, it, although we were punks and we were kind of united, they were still like this um, geographical rivalry. So between Ipswich and Colchester, Ipswich and Norwich, so we attempted to play a couple of shows with those guys, but it just ended up in a mass brawl, as far as I read. <laughs> but funnily enough, the lepers, um, they uh, went off into like a new, new, more new romantic phase and became modern English. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Love I love that one song. What's the one song by them would be the big hit? I only know that one. Right. Yes. Uh, I'll melt with you, which is yes. constantly on the radio over here. Yeah, it was in one of those kind of eighties teen movies. I think it was in the film Valley Girl. Right. Yeah. Um I think they just played some shows over here actually, because some retro festival or something like that. So they're still around. I saw that with Devo and Blondie and Morrissey and all of those bands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that looked like the dream '80s bill. So, oh, yeah. I mean, it sound this all sounds like a quintessential '70s British upbringing. Um, oh yeah, and and as far as like the the Clockwork Orange stuff, um, was the book or the film the first thing that impacted you? Because I think for me it was actually the book first. Um, I ended up doing a dissertation at university on the book on Ken Kesey's Cuckoo's Nest and Clockwork Orange, and how the two were these sort of quintessential okay. yeah. 60s 
countercultural statements, but from different cultural standpoints on on the times. And um, I was always fascinated by the fact that with the film, they left the final chapter of the book out because the film sort of ends with Alex being cured so he's able to do evil deeds again and then the film ends on that note but the book has an extra chapter where he goes back into that life and but what's happened is he's grown up and he's fallen out of love and he sees one of his old droogs in like a coffee house with a partner and he's all kind of loved up and mature and that's when alex goes ah that's the life i now want and so he comes to that conclusion and decision to be good quote unquote um, of his own turn. Comes to the conclusion or is um, forced to that conclusion? Well, he's forced in the chapters that precede that by, the, you know, the mind control techniques. But what happens at the end is he chooses himself that he just no longer wants to live that life because he sees there's another path for him. And that was kind of the moral standpoint of the novel was like, as it says in, in the film as well, it's better to be evil by choice and to be forced to be good, which is obviously a huge philosophical question that everybody will have different ideas on. But yeah, so for you as a young kid, punk's happening. That's inspiring you. Where does the kind of clockwork orange droog imagery come at you from? I don't remember being very familiar with that um, around when the film was released. I never saw the movie in in the cinema. Um, and I believe I read the book, which I still have a co- an early copy of it here with the glossary in the back. The Nats uh, terminology, yeah. Right. Um, so I believe I read the book before I'd even seen the film, and I think I saw the film on uh, VHS bootleg for the first time. And I don't remember ever seeing it in the UK in the cinema. Well, he, he removed it, didn't he? Kubrick himself. Yeah, he withdrew it from, from distribution. Um, I can't remember the rationale for that. I think it was something to do with the violence it was generating, perhaps, or there might have been some other reason. I, I'm, yeah, I'm I think sure. that was it, was there was like copycat crimes yeah. taking place, and he was like, okay, well, if my film's being blamed, I'll just remove that. Right from the equation by taking the film out of distribution. So like when you're dressing up in those costumes and beginning to play for the first time, are you getting negative press as a band? Like, oh my God, they, they're, you know, they're poppycatting this outrageous film. Like what was the reaction to you guys donning those costumes early on? Well, we didn't, we didn't start with that look. We um, plagiarized that along the way. I mean, we, you know, we started in, um, Wikipedia might not say 1975, but that's complete bullshit, so. I so, did, I was thinking that super early on, especially coming from Ipswich, like you're somehow ahead of the London punk scene. <laughs> no, I, was, I was still at school then, and uh, I had no idea. that <laughs> was about to descend, I mean, you know, so no, that's not, so. Uh, what would it have been, more like 79 or something? No, uh, seventy-seven. We met and we played a couple of shows uh, under the name Pins P I N Z, um, and we played in a a scout hut and um, in Oldborough, which is a sleepy seaside town in Suffolk, and then we played at the youth club that we often play that later and always rehearse that for many years um, in Ipswich. Um, so we did a couple of shows as pins and then it was uh, March 78 is when we did the first show as, um, as the addicts. And I have the uh, corroborating uh, evidence for that because I scrap- kept a scrapbook at the time. Amazing. So which I still have here and the, f- the first page of my scrapbook is in the Punk World Museum now with uh, a Polaroid photograph that was taken at, in Oldborough Scout Hut, uh, November 77, and the actual T-shirt that I was wearing at the time, wow. which I had got some paint from my dad's shed 
green paint and some red and splattered stuff on it. Got some holes in it. A, a white cap sleeve T-shirt it was. And I wrote in green paint uh, the lyrics to the Clash is City of the Dead. And what we wear is dangerous gear. Gets you picked on anywhere. And all that. So that's in the museum as well. So that's, you know, that's our beginning. So um, you know, we were just snotty punk kids. So 78, 79. And we, we didn't adopt that uh, clockwork orange look until, I think, late 1980 or 1981 because that's when the first album came out songs of praise and um you know the thought process behind that was i it just looked cool i think it's like what wouldn't it be cool if we dressed like that and because it was you know this was you're getting close to the second wave of punk when it's all leathers and spikes gbh and all that stuff yeah more hardcore street punk look and you know it was um it was an it was an alternative to the alternative look you know we weren't look we weren't looking and, and um as a matter of fact not sounding like all those bands um which were great in their own you know style but you know we always wanted to sound and look a little different and i don't recall it ever being any kind of great deep intellectual kind of epiphany or anything like that well and, and analyzing what Clockwork Orange meant and what it would mean if we dressed like this and made this statement, it's just like fuck, that's cool. Let's just do that. You know? I, how did and, the, and how I, did the punks themselves react to you guys? As you're saying, it's getting a bit tougher, a bit right. street, and you're sharing bills with, I, I imagine, you know, like biker gangs, skinheads, all these kind of like yeah. you know tough characters. So how were the crowds and indeed some of the other bands themselves reacting to this theatrical outfit of, you know, flamboyant kind of zany right. out, out there and you're, you know, daring to have fun? Um, what was the take from within the scene towards you guys? Uh, well, mixed, because, again, at the same time, we, you know, I think maybe a little bit before the whole band started that look, I had started wearing the makeup as well. And, you know, being more flamboyant in my dress and in my persona and all that kind of stuff, you know, really kind of growing into that monkey. I don't want to say character, but side of me, you know? Persona. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And um, so there was a lot of, backlash um from certain bands that kind of really like to um get themselves in sounds or enemy or melody maker and they would it was a uh, good press you know it's good for the for the magazines to have a little you know fight between a couple of bands you know it's a little juicy some gossip and all that so there were a few bands like special duties and other colchester band they would like to give us shit there was a band from fucking Northampton or somewhere. I think they were the destructors. You know, they would like to make t-shirts, the addicts and shit, stuff like that. And yeah. Because we're we're not we're not punk, you know, and all that crap. And then uh I think we had some some runnings with discharge and conflict and those guys. I remember seeing sprayed on a wall while we you know you do the same circuit and play all these shitholes and I think we were some we've got to some place the night after one of those bands had played and it was like, oh the addicts of course sprayed on the wall or something like that, you know. <laughs> so we uh you know we took uh you know lightheartedly, but um, you know, we were we we're also quite capable of taking care of ourselves and we you know wouldn't shirk at um, you know, a confrontation or two, um, if someone was besperching our name. Um so you've got yeah, to, with you've the, got to defend your honor, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and we were, yeah, and then part of that classic working class bring, upbringing was that we were football hooligans as well. You know, I was an Ipswich supporter, and Pete and Kid were are uh, still Sunderland supporters. Um, so maybe a slightly tougher upbringing up there <laughs> there in Ipswich, but you know, so we come we come from that you know football hooligan kind of back beer drinking, beer swilling, you know, hooligan rock kind of uh uh background as well so yeah we 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 were capable of uh, looking after ourselves in that respect so yeah there was uh, a few bands that um 
kind of made us targets. Um, what about on the flip side? What bands at that point, you know, were really into what you guys were doing and, you know, backed you up and, and talked nicely about you in the press and, you know, would kind of be in your corner and, and shouting about the addicts in, 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 in positive, complimentary ways? I think there's again, that's probably more, you know, positive support than 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 the the, the naysayers. Um and we, we did we got a lot of support from the press, from like Gary Bushell and Carol Clark and Melody Maker and stuff like that. They were very supportive of us. We had lots of features. Again, because we were different, I think, and that's what um was attracted to them. We had a sense of humor, we didn't take ourselves too seriously. Um, so we we were we were a good, we were a good interview. Yeah, I can I can imagine. Yeah, and, and a good photo shoot as well. Yeah, and yeah, of course there were uh, dozens and dozens of points of Guinness involved back then. But um, mm-hmm. so I always got sloppy and messy and fun. Um, were the shows very much fueled by uh, liquids and powders back in those days? Um, not so much powders. We were just drinkers mostly. Um, we never got uh, deep into drugs. We were never, you know, we had tested everything, tried everything, but we we were at, we did have a, a, a modicum of professionalism that we tried not to be too pissed. <laughs> it didn't always happen, and, and if we were going to do some kind of drug, we would like to make sure we were doing the same drug. Oh, well, that's um, when it goes wrong, isn't it? Is when everybody's on different stuff. That was a, that was a rule. <laughs> <laughs> the rule of democracy: we all must share the same intoxicants. So, right. at what point do you make the trip over the pond and begin playing in the states? Because I know you know a lot of UK bands didn't get over there for quite some time. I just saw actually the other day Tim Smith is going over to the states with the adverts or a version of the adverts for the first time ever this year, which seems insane to me. He was just here. I didn't get to see him. He played a couple of shows in LA. Um, but yeah, that's amazing. Um, uh, 1983 was the first time we came out. Right, wow. Not that long into a career, really, you know. Um, Consider we'd start playing in scout huts and youth clubs, you mm-hmm. know, within, you know, four or five years, five years, we're you know, flying out to California and getting picked up by a limo um, and then playing to 5,000 people. Wow. And at that point over there, it's kind of the beginning of the whole, I guess, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, X, Germs, that kind of era, a bit more hard or yeah. hardcore. Um, who were the American bands that you would play with when you started coming over initially? And and then how did the American crowds take to you guys? Did they kind of love you from the outset because of the fact theatricality? And because they're always, I think, a bit more receptive to that kind of stuff over there, aren't they? And especially yeah. British bands that have a an already established in their eyes legitimacy when it comes to genres like punk, like you know, bands like the damned and stuff, when they're going over there originally, the Americans are like, Oh my god, you know, these UK legends coming over. Did you have that kind of a response from the outset? Uh, yeah, we did. We were kind of, you know, welcome with open arms by the promoters. Um, and the, the guys that brought us out initially were Golden Boys when they were just kind um, of just growing as a as punk rock promoters. Yeah. Uh, um, and now Coachella, of course. But um, yeah, it was remarkable for us to come from playing those, you know, relatively small shows. I mean, we didn't play in London until. I believe 1980 or something like that. You know, we played at, and again, pubs, a pub called the Breakdown, I think was our first gig in London. And then we started playing um, some shows at the Marquee, often with Chelsea. Um, but then we came over here and because the, the, the bills were big, they were probably like 10 opening bands, Jody Foster's Army, and, right. and uh, lots of local bands like that. Um, also, a great band name. It's, yeah, um, they're, they're the first ones that spring to mind, but there were many, many others. And but we also came with the first time we came, nineteen eighty three. We came with Peter and the Test Tube Babies, right? 
for both of us, it was our first trip over here and our first experience. So, you know, that was a lot of fun, um, just being on the road with those guys. And when I say on the road, I think we probably did six shows or something like that. It was, the, it was only the West Coast. Still a lot of road over there, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, what about the Dickies? I would imagine... Um, I'm not sure at what point you met those guys or if you're friends or whatever now, but I, I kind of, you know, link you two in my mind as, as cut from similar cloths. Um, do you share an affinity or a kinship or a connection or friendship with those guys? And have you shared many bills together over the years? Uh, yes, yes, yes. And yes, to all of that. Um, my two favorite American bands, you know, or actually probably the only two that I were really familiar with back in 1977 or 78 were the Ramones and the Diggies because the Diggies had, you know, banana splits and were on top of the pops. Um, so, you know, subsequently we were over here and moved over here. I've been here 30 years now. And so we played lots of shows um, with the Diggies and I can call um, Stan and, and Leonard my friends now, which, you know, is is remarkable that you know I had those posters on on the wall. The same with the the damned and the vibrators and all those kind of you know people that influenced me and entertained me. You are very fortunate to get to meet and you know you can pick up the phone and call some of those guys now. You know it's 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 it's, it's beautiful really. Um, but yeah, so the Dickies, uh, yeah, it's a bit similar in style and. Attitude. Leonard and I are both really just pop comics fronting punk bands, you know. <laughs> prop comedians, but so good at it. So good at it. Um, I'll be seeing Stan in a few weeks on the Floggy Molly Cruise. He's on there every year uh, with, with Punk Rock Karaoke. So, um, yeah, I've been doing that cruise for three years, and I keep saying to Darren, the drummer, one year I'll get up and sing with you guys. This might be the year I finally do it. <laughs> uh, well, you can, I usually do new roles, so you can take that one if you want. Nice, yeah. <laughs> classic, yeah. The first punk single, yeah, yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So what made you want to move and stay in the States? Was it love? Was it a lady? Uh, yeah. Was it the weather? Uh, well, I, rem I remember thinking that the first time we came here, uh, okay, this is all right. I could, I could, you know, settle down here for sure. In nineteen eighty three, you know, we were drinking cheap champagne and lolling around the pool and stuff like that, and so we had a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, a few years later, I met 
uh, Lisa, who ended up being my wife. So I moved out here in 93 and um, got married. So I've been here since then. And, and yeah, that was the, the motivation was, was love, not music. Well, uh, it, it's a very but, powerful driving force in many things. Yeah, but so um, Pete, the guitarist, has been here as long as I have, if not a little longer too, and you know, for the same reason. So that kind of is a bit of a paradigm shift that we ended up kind of being a California band because of that, you know. Yeah, and I guess that's part of the reason why you're so embraced and adored over there still. Um, at what point do you kind of take a break that becomes the extended break? Was Was that around that time? We've had a few breaks over the years. So, um, yeah, ninety. We, I came here in ninety three. We we did one horrible tour in early ninety four. Uh, and you know, bands go through you know highs and lows, and this was a bit of a low, maybe for punk in general, or and for the band, it's like they, there wasn't much interest. So we did this massive six week tour of the U.S. We came back, you know broken, disillusioned, and kind of just went our separate ways for a, a while after that. Um, well, that, that I, seems crazy to me because, like, at that exact moment is when the entire record industry is turning its eyes on punk for the first time probably since 77, 78, and right. catching in with Green Day, Rancid, No Effect, Offspring, all of those bands. But was it right. just the case that, like, anything pre-grunge was, was of no interest to them? I think, or it just wasn't in, of any interest to the people that were coming to the shitholes that we were playing throughout the Midwest and the South and yeah, where else. But um, I, I don't really know the you know uh, exactly why, but it it was just um, kind of a slow time for us. So we came back off that, and we just kind of shifted. I ended up moving to San Francisco and lived up there for three years. I think Kid went and moved to the north of England and bred dogs, for, lived on the moors or somewhere. And he I was, was going out. to ask, I hope it's not too much of a personal question, but like when you are a touring, working, full-time band and then you do take a break from that, how do you exist as a human? Like, Do you still create and write music? Do you just do it for other people or do you find other sources of income or have you got a bit of royalties to, to live off for a bit? It must be quite a hard shift to make because you're so used to your income coming from you know records and touring and all of that stuff that then all of a sudden well, income from touring we don't really make any income from anything else we've never had any great commercial success we don't we, we don't have a, a revenue flow we don't if we're not on the road we don't make money we've all had regular jobs all the time right. apart from those apart from those 10 years i was on the dole in the early days um, we've all we've all worked um and we've had to right you know, well what could be more punk than that right uh, you know um and that's through necessity rather than choice and we'll continue to do we we there's no addicts for a 1k or retirement fund or anything like that you know so um but uh and i console myself with the fact that the payoff is well we've had a brilliant time and, uh, you know, we've made a lot of people very happy. That you have and continue to. And um, do you do a lot outside of music in terms of your creativity? Because it seems like, you know, you you say you're not mm -hmm. a musician, but you definitely strike me as someone who's like an artist with a voice and, and, you know, likes to express themselves. Does that take on other forms aside from singing and performing live with uh, your bands? Yeah, I have developed as an artist, I think. Um, I mean, I've always been a lyricist um, and kind of a dabbler. As a writer, I wrote some uh, screenplays a few years ago that really didn't really go anywhere, but I enjoyed the process. Um, and then really... COVID kind of drove me into being you know, more like a visual artist, a painter, a, a, a sculptor, a, a weirdo, an eccentric. Um, because that, you know, all of my creative flow 
that come through the shows, the the clothes that I would make or customize myself. Have you always done all your own makeup and props and cost clothing, all of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, always done that. Even from the early days, um, when I would sit at home getting my mum's um you know the old mailed order catalogs you, your mum used to get those big fat ones that were sort of glossy so i would just sit there cutting those up to make confetti um and just make bags to take to the shows i would i would save the women's underwear section I wouldn't of course i was going to say that was like pornography for us back in the day wasn't it a, a brassiere here or there <laughs> <laughs> maybe a nipple is that a nipple one? i think so um, so yeah it's always been the DIY in that sense with you know clothes and props and all that kind of stuff and, that, and as we we got a little more you know cash flow then we always invested more money into that you know in the current day we you know we have balls bouncing around and we have confetti flying through the air and that's money that's you know being thrown at the audience there too you know so um but we're aware of the impact of that and if you know that, that has on a on a show not on the audience so um what was the question again i think uh art art outside of of singing um visual art i'm i've been um banging out a couple of things today so well here we go let's have a little exclusive look <laughs> are you involved in the um the punk rock and the paintbrushes collective I've had a couple of things and some of their uh, um some of their exhibitions yeah and then I've, when I'm at the Punk Rock Museum, I kind of take stuff out there and try and flog it out of the back of my truck. Amazing. And I've done like pop-ups around LA, flea markets and that kind of stuff. And a few things in galleries and all that. But I was just like banging out a little Debbie Harry today. Yeah, she just is. Stuff. And there's a Bowie. I mean, I'm in, I just like, I like down and dirty quick art. I'm not a fine artist. I don't have the patience for it. But I'm just like. Like, like it's a, a song or a performance, you want instant kind of results and gratification, I guess, in some way. So I kind of like the art to be like that. Um, Did you do that, the cover to your solo album? That was, um, I conceptually, yes, but I didn't do the art. That's art by Bad Otis Link. Right, because like, it looks like a very similar vibe to what you've just shown me there. Yeah, yeah it, it is somewhat, but... No, Otis is like a legendary LA artist. He again going back to Golden Voice in those early punk days. He did all of their posters and flyers and stuff like that. Right on. He's um he lives out like in Joshua Tree in the desert now in, in the temple. But yeah, amazing guy and amazing art. So he did. He's a friend, so he did that for me. Um, but all this, the painting and the whatever the fuck you want to call it, um. Really came through COVID when that creativity that usually would go into the shows had nowhere to go. And it just, I just started messing around out here. I just have an apartment, I have a little um, um, a balcony out there, he's covered in paint and stuff like that. So that doubles up as the studio. I don't think I'm ever going to get my security deposit back as if the landlord sees it. <laughs> it's funny for me, COVID was, a, I think, a, a test in some ways of true creatives because I think true creatives always find a way to create and, and whatever hurdles are presented in front of them, the ones who really love expressing themselves will always find a way. I think it's the fair weather kind of, you know, business-minded creatives that if there's a blockade in the way they'll give up and you know maybe turn their hand to something else but if you have stuff inside you that you need to get out um and one form is is taken away you're just gonna adapt and find another aren't you yeah exactly that's what happened to me i mean i was itching for some some kind of outlet and you know some of the, and the stuff i did at the beginning was horrible but again that's process because you do it as a songwriter, as an artist, as a writer, whatever it is you do. You kind of know sometimes that this is not real good, but if I don't get through this, I won't get to the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to earn the release of your greatness, haven't you? Right. Put in that thousand hours. <laughs> 
Hey, have you ever opened up for Alice Cooper? Uh, no, I, I don't even think I've even seen Alice Cooper. Wow. Okay. So whoever your agent or who's in charge of your live stuff is, that oh. that's the move. Because, I mean, it's exactly the same thing to me. It's the theater. It's, yeah. you know, it's entertainment. It's cartoony. It's shocking. It's funny. Uh, and he was just over in the UK and they had the tubes opening up. Um, okay. And it worked really well. You know, I think a lot of the audience were just like, what the fuck? Because a lot of Alice Cooper fans are obviously just kind of like hard rock guys and don't quite understand the full kind of like avant-garde roots of that band. Um, but I think Addicts Alice Cooper would be the perfect night out. Halloween tour. There it is. All right. That, that's... <laughs> just pitching you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, actually, I'm going out to the desert next week for the to go to the Punk Rock Museum and go to a wedding out there. So Alice Cooper's often playing desert out uh, playing desert, playing golf out there. So maybe I'll run into him on the golf course. Not that I play golf, but I can go look for him. Go start. Oh, they do say that's where a lot of business deals get done out in uh, LA and, and that side of the world, <laughs> isn't it? Is on the golf course over 18 holes. <laughs> so have you done a tour yet? Or will these upcoming ones be your first of the museum? Oh, this will be my third run at it. I was out there in April and June, and uh, now I've got three more dates in November. I'm also doing a DJ slot on Sunday night. That's um, what I do. That's my, that's my other gig, aside from this. That's my full-time sort of earner, really. I love it. Have you done many of them? No. <laughs> it's easy. That. It's all about the choice of tunes, you know, and then you just hit play. It's fine. It's well, there won't be any any actual discs involved, and I don't know how much jockeying I'll be doing, but I do have a playlist, so I think that's... You're 90% of the way there, Monkey. You're 90% but I, but I, want, I need a microphone, and that was, you know... I do a bit of that. I'm partial to a bit of that. My background's in radio, so I can't help myself, no matter how big or small the room. Um, yeah. You know, I like, I like to give a bit of context and, you know, anecdotal sprinklings around. I, I've been, it's, uh, it's a bit of a frustrating project, but I've been talking to uh, a radio station about having a show for quite some time now. And so I did put playlists together and I did put liners together and kind of, you know, develop some shows. And I kind of really, uh, I like that. I like the the searching for the songs and then the search for, um, you know, the corroborating material to go with the songs, not just like the stats or this came out then and this one. The threads that tie it all together, right? And because, and so it connects like my day job, like with the museum and maybe be putting these radio shows together is that, my day job is archaeologist and historical researcher. Wow. And so it's a nice connection that I could do research on punk rock and find stories and, and uh, connections between bands and, um, you know, like how, you know, Glasgow's first punk band, Johnny and the Self Abusers, ended up being Simple Minds and Love that. Like, like who? What was the other one I liked? Uh, Someone's going to get their head kicked in tonight. You know that song. Rizillos. A bunch of other people covered it. Dropkick Murphys, I think, done it. And kinds of bands done it. That was fucking written by Fleetwood Mac. I never knew that. Which which particular members of Fleetwood Mac? Do you know? Uh, Pre. um, Pre Pre Stevie and. uh... 69 or something like that something like that it was but it's the their versions up on youtube or somewhere like that but yeah it was and it was a b-side that they used like a fake band name for it i think which i escapes me right now wow. but anyway finding little nuggets like that that connect songs you know um well it already like, sounds like you put more work and effort into it than steve jones has ever done for his radio shows oh, <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were gonna say that i do <laughs> no, no. Steve Jones, as much as I adore listening to his radio shows, he just kind of puts up the mic and, and wings it, doesn't he? That's half the charm. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously he's in LA, so I've listened to it in the past. I don't 
um, listen to it very often. Um, I don't I even know. think he's doing it still. I think he stopped it a couple of years back, but yeah. So he is obviously someone who's been there a while as well. Um, Billy Duffy from the cult. There seems to be a few Brits who've kind of like landed there and stayed there. And it seems yeah. to be that you get treated pretty good. Has that been your experience as well? They love the Brits. Um, well, yeah, they love the Brits, but I also love the you know the guys in the Brit bands. I mean, you mentioned Billy Duffy, so I don't know Billy Duffy, but I'm good friends with Phil Rowland, who's good friends with Billy Duffy. And Phil lives out here too. He just lives in Reseda. And so he played drums on my solo thing. And nice. Phil was Aaron Slaughter and the Dogs and the Nips and bands I hear like London Cowboys, an amazing drummer and done lots of cool stuff. So, yeah, he's just down the, the road and we might do some stuff together again uh, at some point soon um uh again lost my train of thought again mm -hmm. it's all good man it's all good well we're nearly at the hour so we can we can wrap in a little while but yeah it's been really lovely talking to you man and the addicts for me were one of the very first so I'm 37, so my generation was very much the aforementioned American bands that I referred to earlier, Offspring, Rancid, etc. And then right. through discovering them as a kind of teenager, I then went back and traced the fruit all the way to the root and, you know, found The Clash and, and Pistols and bands like that. But The Addicts were always a band that I loved early on because of the whole visual presentation of the thing, being as obsessed with, with you know, Clockwork Orange and dystopian literature as I was. So... Yeah, always been a big fan of the bands. Still never seen you, though, which still breaks my heart. Um, um, in terms of the kind of touring schedule for the Addicts, what's on the, the docket at the moment? And is there anything kind of down the line for either uh, UK or US listeners? We haven't. Well, we played three shows in July here in Southern California. And they were our first shows in over three years. How um, were they? It was great. I mean, they, you know, obviously there was a the demand because we haven't been around much lately. So, you know, we played uh, headline two shows ourselves that, you know, sold out the first day or two, you know, like a uh, thousand capacity kind of rooms. And then we played a festival down in uh, Santa Ana, um, which is like south of L.A. And uh, we were like uh, special guests to a band called The Garden. Um, who have this kind of uh, uh, clown image too. So uh, their audience is much longer. But anyway, but there were 9,000 people at this festival and, you know, it was real good for us. And there were like uh, lots of white faces in the crowd, some for us and some for them. So that was a good experience. So we came with that, out of that um, kind of, you know, um, buoyed by that experience. Um, but, you know, we're a little older than we used to be. And so you spread out a bit, right? And so me and Peter here, kids in England, and the other two guys that are in the band are German and they live in Berlin. So, you know, we have some always have, have had some logistical issues with the scheduling, scheduling and stuff like that. So um so we have to take our time these days as to when we can plan anything like that. So um at the moment we're talking about perhaps something in spring. And that's um, you know about as far on as we are with that at the moment um i guess yeah. for bands like yourselves the big ones at the moment is kind of punk rock bowling and then rebellion and i guess they seem to be the kind of um that's right and then there's also uh punk in the park which is out here in uh yeah week actually i think i think punk in the park is the biggest punk festival in the u.s wow is it yeah anyways are doing it, aren't they this year so um yeah they'll also be on the boat in a couple of weeks as will broilers a german punk band i imagine you probably toured a lot with the uh totenhausen am i saying that right yeah holes and the, the dead trousers great band they are oh yeah they're amazing and we um we've been friends with them since the 80s when uh they were just up and coming and you know we i think they might have opened for us at a couple of shows and but that's quickly switched. And um, so we played some of their, we've been guests on some of their um, 
some of their smaller tours where they only play to 20,000 people, you know, we, we don't play the big ones when it's, you know, 100,000 a night. Yeah, they're like a stadium band, aren't they? They're like Bon Jovi big over there. Yeah, incredibly uh, uh, popular in Germany and the rest of Europe. But England, I think they just played Rebellion this year. Yeah, um, they did, yeah. Finding anything like that. And I don't know that they've ever played in the US. They're popular in Argentina, like many other Germans, perhaps. And then, uh, yeah, but but they've always been good to us, uh, friends. And, and yeah, the drummer is English form. He was in uh, uh, Doctor in the Medics back in the day. No way. He's played in a bunch of other bands, yeah. So, um, Before I let you go, what did you think of the Joker film? Did you enjoy it? Uh, I haven't seen it, so I can't tell oh, you. Oh, mate, you got to check it out. I mean, so is clowning something of interest to you, um, or are you not really someone who's sort of, you know, invested and a student of that particular art form? It just happens to be that you, you know, don similar attire and, and paint and stuff, because I'm fascinated by the whole history and artistry of, of that particular medium of performance. I think it's just so interesting and magical and dark and funny and brilliant yeah i'm interested to it like i said but i'm not really a student not like not studied the art um but yeah the but the the look or my look obviously has some some uh, influence from you know the joker batman but the joker when i was growing up was the um cesar romero of course the, uh, Joe, um, and and that, and but that look also, you know, has its influences from the the man who laughed. Have you ever seen that movie? I haven't. But it's like an old black and white silent film. Yeah, right? no, he he gets stuck like that. He just can't stop smiling. There's the money shot right there. It's <laughs> that panic grin on the whole time. Um, so. <laughs> You know, it came from there, and there's other bit other white faces. Like you remember, like the Alex Harvey band, of course, the sensational Alex Harvey band. (laughs) What age did you realize that was a a trait that you had that you could, you know, accentuate and manipulate and cash in on? Was there a moment of realization where you're like, "Oh, this is a thing that I can dial up"? Um, my recollection of that is that, um. When we were doing shows and people would take photographs and, you know, a week later you go to Boots and get your prints. And um, I, I, I would always mug at the camera. Well, if I saw a camera, I was always doing that before I had the makeup. And I started seeing this grin and I thought, well, that's maybe there's something there. And I think from that, Pete designed that first uh, logo that we had. And I think he just, you know, incorporated that based on you know what I was doing and what we were seeing in, in the photographs. And then you know the development of that was oh there's a logo and then why don't I make myself more like the logo, more like a caricature. And that's kind of when the you know the evolution of the makeup started. It's genius really. Someone once said to me that like the best thing you can do is any sort of performer or indeed public figure in the entertainment sector is be recognizable by silhouette and yeah. that's that's when you know like you've really you know if you see like the outline of a marilyn monroe or an elvis or a michael jackson or someone like that right you're like that's a true icon status and well, addicts have that you've got these ears then <laughs> <laughs> addicts have it man it's it's <laughs> it's your trait it's your calling card and long may it long may it remain i would recommend the joker film i think you'd really enjoy it it's very inspired by king of comedy the scorsese film it's a massive kind of nod to that um and it's brilliant second, one, second one's about to come out isn't it it is so you can do the first and then jump straight into the second <laughs> well dude listen i'm going to let you go thank you for um working with me on rearranging the time as well and it's good that we did because I literally the second we started this you know conversation I just sat down and come through the door. So um, thank you for being flexible. Thank you for being generous with your time, and thank you for the music and all the years of entertainment, mate. Oh, thank you for the for the support. Um, and if you need anything else, want to 
any more info or anything like that, you know where to find me. Thank you. And yeah, if I'm ever that side, which I will be, um, would love to meet yeah. up and go for a bite to eat or, a, you know, a beer or a soda water, whatever your drink of choice is. And uh, yeah, and I hopefully come see a show. I haven't drunk any of that get us for 10 years now. So um, good on you. Good on you. Well, we'll have a Guinness Zero. That's good stuff, that is. You know what? I was talking to my mate in England the other day because he said he drinks it. And I saw a, a commercial on a telly for it as well. Since I quit drinking, which is uh, 10 years ago, I never had any inclination for like uh, non-alcoholic beer or wine. Or I've never even tasted a non-alcoholic beer. Just don't have the, um, have the need. Um, but I always thought if I ever did start drinking again, the first thing I would drink would be a pint of Guinness. And I thought, well, maybe I could just try the zero alcohol then because it, it seems like it gets good reviews, right? It's, I mean, for me, it's Guinness is my favorite drink in the world. Um, I think it is the best drink in the world. And the Guinness Zero is identical in every way apart from the. Oh, the texture and the kind of thickness of it, it tastes oh, the same. It's just slightly more watered down. Something in the brewing process minus the alcohol makes it a little bit more, you know, thin. But other than that, it's pretty much like the real thing. And it's the best of the 0%, you know, replica. Like the real thing in some shitty pub in the 70s then. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. You're like, oh, there's something wrong with the lines. No, no, it's just zero. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, dude, good luck with the tours. See you yeah. down the road. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show and, and hanging out and, and telling some stories. Really enjoyed it. Yeah.